was Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed the growing threat of Nazism in Germany in the 1930s, he was wisely able to perceive what was really going on when many were being deceived. What he saw in the political movement of uh, the, the Socialist Party was that Hitler was using his platform and his political power to demand total and absolute allegiance. And he enforced that demand with coercion and with intimidation. And in later reflection on this, he made this comment of the whole political process that went on. He said, with the tools of democracy, democracy was murdered and lawlessness was made legal. Raw power ruled and its only real goal was to destroy all other powers besides itself. And Bonhoeffer also saw that though the Nazis were anti-Christian as a movement, they pretended to be Christian as long as it served the purpose of getting people on their side. And so the Nazis would co-opt the church institution as one more way to demand allegiance and to spread their propaganda. In fact, what made Bonhoeffer leave the German church and start his own denomination, the Confessing Church, was when the Nazis forced all pastors to take this new vow. It said this, in the recognition that only those may hold office in the church who are unswervingly loyal to the Fuhrer, the people and the Reich, it is hereby decreed, anyone who is called to a spiritual office is to affirm his loyal duty with the following oath. I swear that I will be faithful and obedient to Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer of the German Reich and the people, that I will conscientiously observe the laws and carry out the duties of my office, so help me God. And here was the threat. Anyone who refuses to take the oath of allegiance is to be dismissed from office. And so Bonhoeffer, seeing that, knowing what was going on, would often his, compare his situation in Germany to what Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego had to go through in Babylon. He drew a lot of comfort and wisdom from the book of Daniel. When Israel was a nation in exile in Babylon, and there was a king named King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you've ever seen VeggieTales, you know he had a big chocolate bunny. <laughs> Not quite. But he made a statue of himself, <clears throat> and he demanded that all the citizens of his kingdom would not just cooperate with him, but would bow down and worship him. Because in the ancient world, political leaders saw themselves not just as leaders of a nation, but they saw themselves as the embodiments of the gods and demanded not just political loyalty, but religious loyalty as well. And so Nebuchadnezzar tested loyalty of his citizens by having the statue, by demanding all to bow to it under the threat of death. So what 1930s and 40s Germany and ancient Babylon have in common is that both are prime examples of Satan's spiritual warfare strategy against the people of God, which is laid out for us in Revelation 13. And what is Satan's strategy? Satan's spiritual warfare strategy against God and his people is to co-opt and corrupt both the political and the religious realm in order to spread lies and destroy the people of God. He sees these institutions as the main media channels to get his message out and to draw people away from the true gospel. <clears throat> and last week we saw in Revelation 12 that what John was showing to the church is behind all the conflicts, behind all the wars that are going on, is the ultimate conflict that has been going on since the fall, which is that the enemy of God is pursuing the people of God because he hates God and he hates his people. And now what Revelation 13 is showing us is this is kind of John bringing us into the, the, 
spiritual warfare situation room. And he's saying, here are the tactics of the enemy. Here are the channels, the instruments, the emissaries, the ambassadors he uses to go about this warfare in his tactics. And so what John is showing us is that Satan seeks to co-opt and um, take over these political institutions, these religious institutions, as a way of spreading counterfeit messages, propaganda, uh, against the church. So we're going to look at two of them. We're going to first look at verses 1 to 10 of Revelation 13 and see how Satan seeks to destroy the people of God through the coercion of political power. And now, before we get into this, before we dig into this text, let me say, I thought Revelation 11 was the most debated chapter of this book. Then I thought Revelation 12 was the most debated <laughs> chapter. I'm here to rescind those and say that Revelation 13 is the most debated section. I'm not going to cover every detail. I'm not going to give every view. You might disagree with me, uh, and that's okay. What I'm going to try to do is a flyover. I'm not going to be able to, to uncover every nook and cranny. But what I want to show is I think the essence of what John is saying, which I think is relevant to all God's people at all times. And if you do have further questions, I'd be, I'd be happy to discuss those. I understand there's, there's much debate, but I want to focus on what is the main overarching principled message that John is saying and how can we use that and live faithfully as we await the return of Christ, which is the ultimate hope of the people of God. And also, I just don't have much voice, so I can't get into all this. So Satan, in his spiritual war against the church, uses the coercion of political power to spread his message and to intimidate the people of God. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 13. It says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now look back at verse 3 of chapter 12. And what you'll notice as you look back at chapter 12, verse 3, is that the description of this beast in chapter 13 is almost identical to the description of the dragon in verse 12. So we're meant to see that this beastly figure is an agent, an emissary, an ambassador of the dragon who has declared all-out war on the people of God. And the fact that it has blasphemous names on its head demonstrates the purpose of this beast. What is the aim of this beast? It's to attack and assault everything that God stands for, including his people, his gospel, and the church. And so the description then of the beast gets even more interesting in verse 2. So notice he's like a leopard. He's like a bear. And he's like a lion. Now the question is, well, where does this description come from? Where is this terminology used together? And to do that, I want to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 7? One of, I think, the important principles, kind of the, the continental divide of how you handle the book of Revelation is when Revelation has symbols and imagery and descriptions. Where do you go to interpret those symbols, imageries, and descriptions? Do you go to the newspaper, to the internet, or do you go to the Old Testament scriptures? Now, my presupposition, my framework is that John is using images that are already there in the Bible for you. And so we don't do things like, there's one article that was out there, um, this was, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, claiming that Henry Kissinger was the beast. He was the mark of the beast. Some of you probably heard this in the 80s. Maybe Ronald Wilson Reagan. I mean, six letters, each of his three names was there. And they would do things like, 
You know, when Henry Kissinger was in first grade, his favorite animal was a leopard. And one time he went to the zoo and there was a lion in that exhibit in the zoo that he, I mean, they would take these very outlandish things. And it's somewhat humorous, but that's, that's what people do. And I think the best interpreter of scripture is scripture. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. So you have to look at these images and see where else in scripture do they come together? And that's where we need to go to Daniel chapter seven. So what I think John is doing here is he's drawing from a prophecy that Daniel had previously given. And here's what Daniel says. Verses, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. There's one correspondence with Revelation. And four great beasts, there's another correspondence, came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now some of you are like, that was just as confusing as Revelation 13. What, what does it stand for? Look at verse 17 of Daniel 7. So just jump down. This is what Daniel says. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So what Daniel was seeing from his historical vantage point was four kings representing four kingdoms that were going to arise after Babylon. Babylon was thinking that they were the last, final, the great kingdom. And that's why God had to humble Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And yet what Daniel showing him is that, no, there's kingdoms that are going to come after you. In fact, each one that comes after you will destroy the one that was in the place before it and will oppose and harm and assault the people of God. And so Babylon gives way to Persia. And then Persia gives way to Greece. And then Greece gives way to Rome. And each of those empires, in their own way, took over the previous one and assaulted the people of God in a unique way. And so what John is doing is he's drawing from this prophetic picture in Daniel, but instead of describing a bunch of different beasts, if you flip back to Revelation 13, notice that the beast in Revelation 13 is a composite, a coming together of all the different beasts that Daniel described as, as different ones. And so what I think John is doing is he's showing us that this beast of Revelation 13 represents every political figure, every political regime that will come in history and will oppose God and his people. That's one thing that John is seeing. And what John is also seeing is a beastly figure that will come in the future as a kind of climactic final manifestation of this image of someone in a political position who opposes and assaults the people of God, and yet one who will be destroyed by the breath of Christ's mouth when he comes. And so my view is what John is describing is both patterns that are gonna punctuate history that the church is gonna to have to deal with, and a person that will be a final manifestation of this at, at some point before Christ returns. And I think the mistake that people often make, and perhaps you think, you know, Andrew, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too, and perhaps I am, 
But what I think what John is showing is we have to understand he has an original he has an original audience that he's writing to, that would understand that what he is writing about clearly relates to Emperor Nero, and Emperor Vespasian, and Emperor Domitian, who is doing the very things that this beast is representing. And yet, throughout history, we see other political figures. You see Pol Pot in Cambodia. You see Hitler in Germany. And these are manifestations of this pattern that Satan tries to use to oppose God and his people. And yet, what we understand is that when, right before Christ returns, there is going to be another manifestation of this. And so for the church, we need to understand that this is not something we just need to say, hey, we don't have to worry about it. That, should, that already happened, or that's just happened in the future. We just can have a great time. We have to understand that these are one of the things you have to be alert to. Now, to prove this both and point I'm trying to make, both a, a pattern throughout history and a person that will show up in history, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, 18. So John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote other letters to the churches. And he describes some of the same things there. So 1 John 2.18, he's warning the church of, here's what, you have, here's what you're going to have to endure as believers. And he says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so it sounds future, right? Notice what he says, though. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. So if you'd ask John, which is it? John, is there a future Antichrist coming or have many Antichrists come now and are gonna come? And what would John say? He would say, yes. The answer is yes. And I think what John is getting at is that the spirit of Antichrist in terms of someone opposing God, opposing his people and using political power to do it is something that's gonna recur throughout history and yet have a final manifestation uh, in a way that will, will be great and something that we're going to have to resist and oppose. It's one of those both and rather than either ors of scripture. Now for John, think of his own situation. Where is John as he's writing this? He's on the Isle of Patmos as a political prisoner because he is dealing with a beastly figure in the Roman emperor. He is there because the Roman empire sees him as a threat to their cause and because they want him to be silent. So they put him on an island. So John knows what it's like to feel the breath of this beastly beastly figure and endure a beastly manifestation of this satanic strategy. Or think of the Puritans in England from 1553 to 1558. What did they face? They faced the reign of Queen Mary, who, because of her Protestant predecessor, wanted to impose Roman Catholicism not just by law, but by lethal death. And so for the Puritans who refused to denounce their opposition to Catholicism and the distortion of the gospel, from 1553 to 1558, three to 400 Puritans were burned at the stake because they would not renounce that justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And so they knew what it was like to face what they called Bloody Mary, a ferocious and uh, very clear demonstration of this beastly figure in Revelation 13. Or think about any Christian or missionary who today is seeking to bring the gospel into a place where it's a totalitarian government, a communist government, or an Islamic state where it is literally illegal and deadly to be a Christian and to spread the gospel. They have an up-close and personal knowledge of a modern-day manifestation of this beast. Now, what characterizes 
this beast, which represents this satanic opposition to the church through political power. Well, one thing that characterizes this beast is that no matter how many times you think this beast has finally been laid to rest, you finally think it's dead and gone, it keeps reviving and it keeps coming back. Now I'm drawing that from verse 3 and 4 of Revelation 13. Look there with me. So John describes this beast, drawn from Daniel, representing evil kingdoms, political power against the church. He says this, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now, many interpreters think that this verse predicts exclusively a future remarkable recovery of the Antichrist from a deadly wound, which is this deceptive attempt to kind of mimic and counterfeit the resurrection of Christ and to draw worship. Now, I, I think that is a proper way to look at it. But I also think that this is a picture of the fact that throughout history, political regimes, political figures that oppose God and his people like, like Rome, they exercise their power, their satanic influence. They seek to, to squelch the church and, and stamp out the gospel. And they die away, like Rome has, and you think they're dead and gone, but then what happens? Another one keeps rising up in its place in some form or fashion, because it's as if this, this beast will not stay. It's as if the political opposition to Christ and the gospel will not go away. It just keeps rising up in different places. So a historical example of this. After World War I, many thought that Germany had been reduced to ashes and would never recover, that their, their economy was done, their military could never be rebuilt. And yet what happened in 1930s and 1940s? It was revived in an even more destructive and demonic way in World War II. I think that's a historical example of this pattern recurring throughout history. You think that people would look at something like a, a free democratic society and think, we don't want a totalitarian dictator. And yet, nation after nation after nation keeps putting in place or allowing to be put in place totalitarian dictators who not only wield their power for their personal gain, but they actually wield it against God and against the gospel. Well, another characteristic of this beast is that it wields its political power not just for personal gain, but in direct opposition to God and to his people. So look at verse 6 and 7 with me. So 6 and 7 said, It opened its mouth <clears throat> to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in, in heaven, also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So sometimes what's very clear is that the opposition to God is overt and obvious. So think of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. He builds a statue demanding worship, or think of the Roman emperor who demands that all citizens declare Caesar is Lord. Now, that's very clear and very obvious. We know it's a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet, sometimes the direct opposition to God is more covert and subtle. So I think of the modern West. I think of our situation. When the government, in a very beastly way, seeks to kind of promote a culture of death, and they legalize abortion and call it things like reproductive freedoms, or in a very subtle and covert way, they try to promote a culture of perversion. 
And so they endorse so-called same-sex marriage and call it a constitutional right. Or they try to subtly and covertly promote a culture of individual autonomy where what you want and what your desires are rules. And therefore, they deny unchangeable biological realities like male and female, and they call it freedom of expression and freedom of the individual. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to say that we're living, quote unquote, in a full manifestation of the beast, but there's the beast and there's beastly expressions in government, some overt and some covert, because there's always subtle ways of using political power in satanic and beast-like ways. And so for us, the struggle isn't so much facing these direct threats where we say, okay, do we have to bow before the statue? Do we have to make this allegiance statement that we know we cannot make? Ours is, how do we live as Christians when the atmosphere that we're in, the air we're breathing, is very much against what the scriptures would say? When it's an, an atmosphere of a culture of death, a culture of perversion, a culture of autonomy, when we know those things do not honor the Lord. How can a Christian patiently endure this beastly satanic strategy? Well, I think one thing we always need to keep in mind as Christians is that there is no politician, there is no political party, and there is no political philosophy that will ever be able to deliver us from the fallen, broken state of this world and deliver us into the promised land. I think one of our ways of being deceived is that we take the allegiance and the hope and the trust that should be given to Christ and we subtly shift it over to a political person, a political party, or a political philosophy. And that's how sometimes the, the subtle shift happens. I mean, you could look at it in history how people, in their hopelessness and destitution, looked to the promises of a politician and said, okay, that's, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm giving my hope to. And what it does is it ultimately undermines where our, our primary and fundamental allegiance should be. Our primary fundamental allegiance is with Christ, and it should never shift from that. Our primary and fundamental allegiance and citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, and that never changes. And yet, every election cycle, every promise from a politician entices us I can, I can build the utopia. I can bring in the promised land. Well, you know what Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have in common? I bet I have your attention now. <laughs> they share this in common. In fact, they, they all are very equal on this. They all make terrible saviors and miserable messiahs. That's what they all share in common. Regardless of their political platform, their political party, their political philosophy, they all make terrible saviors. They cannot deliver us out of the fallen state of this world into the promise that we will never get the best that government can do. And it is an institution of God that we should honor and care for and participate in. The best it can do is mitigate the effects of the fall. It cannot overturn the effects of the fall. The best it can do is make things a little bit more comfortable as we wait the return of Christ, but it will never replace the new heavens and the new earth. It will never replace our savior. And so the Christian's ultimate and supreme allegiance is with the Lord. And so when any political and governing authority calls us to do something we know that the Lord would not approve of, what's our response? It needs to be the same response as Peter and John said, you tell us, who should we obey, God or men? And the answer was clearly God. So look at Revelation 13, 9 and 10. This is what John is hinting at. It says in verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, 
to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What John is warning the church about is that there are times when you don't get to pick living in a free democratic society and being a Christian. You have to pick one or the other. You have to pick living in a political regime that is opposed to Christianity or faithfully standing for Christ. And when it does, you need to be able to say with Peter and with John, we must obey God rather than men, regardless of the costs. That oftentimes for the church, politics has not been the savior that they were looking for to get them out of it. It has often been the opponent that they have had to stand up against. Well, here's another reason we can endure this opposition. Christians can patiently endure political opposition to the gospel, knowing that every time, every time the church has faced this in history, God has preserved his people through it and grown them in spite of it. I mean, when you study history, which you ought to do, it is so helpful in gaining a clearer, more helpful, fuller perspective. Because so many times we can look at our modern situation and think, it's never been this bad, we're never going to get out of it. Um, you know, just sound the alarm, it's, we're done. Threat level, orange. And yet when you look at history, we see, I think we've exaggerated the novelty of our situation a little bit. We need to um, calm down. And yet when you look at history, you see, look what God has done in these more dire, more extreme situations for his church and how he's blessed them. So for example, throughout history, God has preserved and grown his people in spite of the beastliness of the Egyptian empire in the book of Exodus, in spite of the beastliness of the Assyrian empire in the 700s BC, in spite of the beastliness of the Babylonian empire in Daniel's day, in spite of the beastliness of the Roman empire during Jesus and the apostles' day. When the Reformation spread in the 1500s, it was not because the political climate was favorable to it. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Most of the reformers had to flee from political um, captivity. And yet the Reformation spread like wildfire because God was still blessing it in spite of the political opposition to it. And even today, some of the places where the church is growing and thriving are the very places you'd expect it not to. The, the church in China has been growing and thriving more than the church in America. The church in Middle Eastern Muslim context has been growing and thriving exponentially more than has been growing in places where we have the, the, the freedom and privilege to do what we do here today. And why is this the case? This is the case because Jesus gave us a promise as the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What he meant is, I'm going to build my church not because hell won't assault the church, not because there's not going to be opposition to it. He said, I will build my church because despite their best efforts, which they have, the church will prevail against it and he will build his church. And so with that, I'm going to, I'm going to, you probably were hoping for the mark of the beast this week. I'm going to save that for next week, uh, unless the Lord returns, and hopefully I'll have another voice to, to be able to